Hi, John Leach here and welcome to another podcast as we continue to think about how different strands within the New Testament interpret the cross and what was achieved on it for us. We began by looking at Luke and Acts and we said that that was the most primitive understanding. We looked at those two words, but God. And we said that for Luke, the cross was the triumph of human evil over God, which then needed to be undone and reversed. But God raised Jesus, thus uh, reversing the effects of the cross. Last week, we looked at the cross in St. Mark and a rather complicated journey through the gospel but basically said that the cross is the place where Jesus is finally revealed for exactly who he is the son of God and it took a Roman centurion to uh, recognize that Uh, but also far from being the defeat of God's purposes by evil humans it was actually the fulfillment as Jesus went to the cross This week we're going to look at the cross in the writings of St Paul and particularly the letter to the Romans which is a kind of summary statement of of much of Paul's theology and we're going to see a very different picture. We're going to set our scene today in a courtroom. I don't know whether... Uh, anyone is fans of courtroom dramas, whether it's Judge John Deed or uh, A Few Good Men, one of my favourite films. But there's something uh, quite exciting about that scene. And I want to paint that picture for you this morning um, and then look at some objections to uh, Paul's model. So we've got the court And the judge is seated on his platform, or in fact on his throne, because the judge is God. And over there, looking very scary with horns and a pitchfork, is the counsel for the prosecution. His job is to accuse prisoners to the judge, to convince him how evil they really are. In fact, the word Satan means the accuser. But who's on trial here? Who are the prisoners? Well, let's have a look in the dock. And it's a bit crowded in there because the those who are on trial is the human race, including us. So uh, it's a bit tight, but the judge bangs his little hammer. The court is in session and the prosecution reads out the charges to the judge. Your Honour, the human race is guilty before you and I intend to prove guilt on three charges. Number one, they have sinned, both corporately but every single individual within the human race has broken your rules for the running of this earth. They have lied, even white ones. They've cheated, They've been violent and vicious. They've harboured hatred and revenge in their hearts. Some of them have raped and killed people. Some have killed millions of people. 
Some have nicked biros from work or diddled their taxes, but nevertheless they are all equally guilty, and your honour you have no option but to find them guilty. The second charge that I will prove in this trial is that these people are your enemies. They have set their hearts against you. They have hated you. They have mocked you. They have blamed you for everything that has gone wrong, but never thanked you for the things that have gone right. They have used science to disprove you. They've used your name as a swear word. They've committed violence in your name. And worst of all, for much of the time, they've simply ignored you. They've lived as if you were not there. You have to find them guilty of that. The third charge, Your Honour, is this. They are helpless. They are totally without any excuse. There are no mitigating circumstances. Even those who have never heard of you still have the witness of the world you created and all that you ask is that they honour you and thank you but the vast majority have failed to do that. No one of them is any better than the rest. Some of them are worse than the rest, but no one is any better than the rest. They are all equally guilty in your sight. They are without excuse. They've known the rules and they've chosen to ignore you. And the counsel for the prosecution tucks his tail out of the way and sits down. The judge looks round the court. Who's the counsel for the defence? He realises there isn't one. Because the human race have decided, as is their legal right, to conduct their own defence. And they take on those three prosecution points one by one. Number one, of course we're not sinners. That's far too harsh. You've got to see some grey areas in here. We we like to think of ourselves perhaps as expressing ourselves, not sinning. I mean, that that's such an outdated word anyway. Yeah, OK, we may have been a little bit dishonest at times. Um, some of us do have a bit of temper on us. But most of us, we've never murdered. We've never abused children. We've never broken your Ten Commandments, by which, of course, we mean numbers six and seven. Although, to be fair, some of them, some of us have done that a bit. Mostly, we're just decent people trying to get on with our lives. And yes, now you mention it, there was that bit about loving you with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. But... Well, you can't really expect people to do that nowadays, can you? Secondly, we are certainly not your enemies. Some of us are good churchgoers. We're always there to help out with jumble sales or whatever it may be. We've tried to be good neighbours. We've, we've taken our neighbours' dustbins out on a Wednesday night uh, and we're basically not bad people. We pay you a visit every Christmas. 
and we've certainly not got anything against you, although, yeah, to be fair, it is true that some of us don't believe you exist, or, or rather didn't until a few moments ago. And certainly, third point, we're not helpless. OK, we're not perfect, but you've got to understand there were good reasons for what we did. And anyway, we don't need some god to help us out. The human race is coming of age. We have technology to sort out our problems. Thank you very much. The judge listens to the evidence and can't help but agree with the prosecution. They are guilty as charged. He is not at all impressed by their so-called defence. And in a solemn moment, he puts on his black cap and pronounces the death penalty on the entire human race. But then something happens, and you don't often see this on Judge John Deed. The judge breaks down and sobs his heart out. These are my children. I don't want to lose them. If only there's a way they could be forgiven. If only there's a way they would ask for forgiveness. But sentence must be carried out. It's the law. I can't change that. No one can. And then from the back of the court a voice comes. And a figure gets up and walks to the front and says... Let me take their sentence. It's the judge's son. And with great anguish, but also with great relief, the judge passes sentence on his own son and lets the rest go free. Now that's Paul's scenario. That, that's fundamentally, if somewhat fancifully, Paul's theology of the cross. And Romans chapters 1 and 2 go like this. God made the world so that we could tell from what he had made what he is like. All he wanted was two things from the human race. That they would acknowledge him as God and that they would thank him for what he's given them. But instead of that, people ignored the truth worshipped created things, not the creator. So, as people give up on God, he gives up on them. He lets them get on with it. And as they do that, life becomes more and more degraded. I don't know whether you've ever read the book called The Tale of Georgie Grubb. Uh, I'd recommend that for you as a set text. Uh, it's a children's book, obviously. But it is pure Romans theology. It's absolutely on the nail. It's about a little boy who basically refused to have a bath. And so eventually uh, his mother said, OK, off you go, go and get on with it. And I won't spoil the end of the story for you, but it is exactly... Romans 1 theology. But what 
Jesus did was to mount that rescue plan while we were still sinners, guilty and helpless. Christ died for us. The Father sends his Son. The Son gladly agrees to take the punishment that should rightfully be ours. And, and fundamentally that's Paul's theology of the cross. But hang on, I I hear you say, you know, this is really out of order. That is so outrageous. Surely there must be some objections to it. Well, there are. And I want to talk about three objections which are quite topical, particularly at the moment. Number one, it's not like that. And the answer to that is, yes, it is. Re actually read Romans 1 and 2. God made us. He has the right to judge us. He does. He will. We say that in every service whenever we say the creed he will come to judge the living and the dead and most people I guess fall into one of those two categories and if you don't believe people are sinners just look around you just look around you at the lies the dishonesty the racism the war the violence uh, I don't know whether anyone saw a program that was on this last week about fly tipping and the epidemic that that's become and our countryside is literally being scarred because people are too lazy just to take stuff to the tip and dispose of it properly and uh, I said to my wife as we were watching that that that's such a picture of the human race and what we've done so I'm afraid it is like that and a few moments thought will just convince us of that. Second objection, it's not that bad. Really? You want God to be soft on sin? You want him to look at suicide bombers and child rapists and thugs who beat up pensioners for 50 quid, drunk drivers who kill children because they can't say no to another pint, people who devastate creation for profit, people and politicians particularly that you can't believe a single word they say and you say, oh, it's not that bad. God wouldn't feel that he wanted to punish people like that even if our society does sin kills it destroys it separates it harms and you want god to turn a blind eye to that it is that bad and much worse than we realize and of course jesus taught that it isn't just about what you do it's about what you think. That's the seeds that action come from. You harbour anger and encourage it. And sooner or later it's going to overflow into violence. Third objection, and this is perhaps the most serious, it's not fair. God letting his own son be killed instead of us. There is no legal system in the world where that would be allowed if you've done the crime you do the time someone can't just step in and do it for you 
and, and what human father would dream of doing that to their own son? It's just unspeakable God murdering his son for the sin of the world. It isn't fair. And I think I would want to say to that, no, it isn't fair, but it is love. God actually isn't a human father. And there's no reason why we should expect him to behave like one. Our job, those of us who are fathers, is to behave like God, not to expect God to behave like us. Romans 5, 6 to 8 says, basically, you know that you were loved that much that God would lose his son for you. And when God has to be fair, according to human standards, there is really no hope for us. But when he can show love far beyond any human standards, that's when there's hope. The other thing to say is that Christ went to the cross deliberately and willingly. He wasn't forced into it by his father. It was the Trinity agreeing and working together. God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. It's not fair, but it is love. But there is one final twist to the tale. The judge passes sentence on his son. The defendants are allowed to go free. And you would think, wouldn't you, that they would rush out of that dock, throw themselves at the judge's feet in gratitude, vow from then on to live in ways that pleased him. The fact is, tragically, many choose to stay in the dock. Many never appropriate for themselves that sacrifice of Jesus, never give their sins to him to be nailed to the cross with him. They continue to choose to reject and ignore God. It's amazing, but it's true. But those who know the joy of being set free, then our lives are transformed as we seek to live in love and service of the one who died for us.